and welcome to another episode of The Principal Voice, a podcast sponsored by the Ontario Principals Council, or OPC. My name is Peggy Sweeney. The OPC is the professional association representing more than 5,400 principals and vice principals in Ontario's elementary and secondary public schools. We develop and deliver professional learning resources for school leaders, provide legal advice and support, and advocate for public education. Our office is located in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. My guest today is Sarah Coleman, General Counsel for the OPC, and we're going to be talking about negotiations. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Peggy. Sarah, when principals and vice principals were removed from the unions in 1998, we formed a professional association. What impact did that have on principals and vice principals in terms of their contract and their ability to bargain their terms and conditions of employment? As soon as principals were no longer part of teachers' unions, it meant that they were no longer covered by collective agreements. And so as a result, they were left in a bit of a vacuum. They had to come together collectively on a local level as well as provincially. And they had to bargain or negotiate or discuss their terms and conditions of employment with their school board. Some school boards came to the principal group with a contract already in hand and expected them simply to agree. So there was no negotiations that occurred in those circumstances. In other places, there was negotiation of um, some terms, although others were dictated by the employer. Ultimately, there were a variety of practices that occurred across the province. So we know that teachers and support staff negotiations are going on right now as we tape this podcast. A couple of the support staff unions have recently concluded. Why aren't principals and vice principals negotiating right now? Uh, That's because principals and vice principals have contracts in place right now. All of those other education groups had their contracts expire on August 31st, 2019. But principals and vice principal contracts um, were extended for an additional year. So they are in place until uh, August 31st, 2020. Okay, so in the lead up to the next round of negotiations for August 2020, how does the OPC decide what issues it wants to bring to the provincial table? Well, first of all, we would expect that all monetary issues will be dealt with provincially because it's the government that provides the funding for education. And they have made it clear that uh, those are the issues that they want to um, ensure their positions are are delivered by school boards. So uh, we would expect those monetary issues that are being discussed with teachers um, and other education workers would also be on our table. Um, But in addition, we try to reach out to our local members and determine what issues are important to them. And we do that in a number of ways. Uh, Our president visits our local districts and tries to gather information. Um, In addition, we have council meetings three times a year where we seek feedback from our councillors. We are also in regular communication with our local leaders um, and council members to just see what... um, the members are feeling. Uh, And then in addition, we have a caucus team of principals and vice principals who is uh, gathered together to um, advise the bargaining team. Okay, so tell me a little bit about how the process actually works. You've talked about a caucus team and a bargaining team. How does it work and how do we decide who's actually at the table? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that we don't have any guarantees about how 
um, a process for bargaining will work uh, for the next round. Um, that's because we don't have a statute uh, that covers uh, principal or vice principal bargaining. Uh, we don't have any uh, statutory rights um, to be at the table, frankly. Our rights are derived from the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Section 2D protections for freedom of association that have been interpreted by the Supreme Court of Canada to include collective bargaining rights. So we've asserted those rights and in the past couple of rounds of provincial bargaining, we have had a seat at the table, but it's very fluid. And the first thing that we have to negotiate with the government is a document that we call the terms of reference for our actual negotiations. And in the past, uh, times when we've been at the table, we have done that, but it's been very clear that the document is fluid, that it does not set the rules for the following round of negotiations. And so it serves as a starting place but it does not define the process. The pr process remains undefined um, until we come together next and define it. So that will be the first step is to do that. If and when we reach agreement on terms of reference, then we would follow a similar process likely to what the other unions have done, which is to talk about what we're gonna talk about, decide on the list of items that would be dealt with provincially. And only after we have agreement on which things we're going to discuss would we then proceed to substantive bargaining. If we get to substantive bargaining, uh, we will likely have a small group of people uh, that we call our table team who would be present at all bargaining sessions and would take the lead on um, the major issues for, for discussion. Uh, then we would have um, a back room of people to ensure that we had uh, sufficient representation from various um, principals and vice principals across the province, and our caucus uh, would be there as well. Now, when I say we, I mean actually all the principal and vice principal associations, so not just OPC, but ADFO and CPCO as well. ADFO is l'Association des Directions et Directions Adjointes Franco-Ontarienne, or the French Principals and Vice Principals Association, and CPCO is the Catholic Principals Council of Ontario. So you've mentioned these two other provincial principal groups, CPCO and ADFO. Why are we at the table with them? Why do we bargain with them? I guess uh, it's something that we've done um, historically, uh, it, we've come together for this purpose to be able to increase our bargaining power uh, with the government and with school boards. It's more efficient uh, to do that, and we do want to obtain some degree of provincial consistency. Uh, that does not mean, though, that we can't um, break off and have uh, sector-specific discussions. Uh, we certainly in the past have had provision in our terms of reference to be able to do that. Um, and we, we would take advantage of those provisions going forward if we needed to. But what we have found over the years is that there is a lot of consistency among us, um, among the needs and hopes of our members in terms of outcomes for bargaining. Uh, and there is a desire for uh, consistency on most issues across the province. So we know that when the teachers and support staff are at the table, if they find that the bargaining isn't acceptable or they're not happy, they can work to rule or they can go on strike, which is currently happening right now. Are principals and vice principals allowed to do that as well during negotiations? We certainly uh, do not have the same framework um, set out for us 
to govern the rules of the game uh, that unionized staff do. So unionized staff um, are covered uh, by legislation and it provides a very um, rigorous framework, frankly, for how um, job action can proceed and the kinds of notice that needs to be delivered. And it essentially authorizes um, a group of employees acting together uh, to withdraw some or all of their services um, as a form of uh, pressure um, during a bargaining process. Uh, that is kind of the standard um, purpose of uh, strike or withdraw partial withdrawal of service um, is to be able to apply pressure to the employer. And we simply are not covered by similar legislation. So there is nothing to authorize um, our members to take that kind of action. Um, I think about whether principals or vice principals are entitled to um, engage in this similar kind of collection, collective action is actually a matter for debate. Uh, it certainly would be a huge risk for our members to do it because we don't have that statutory framework and we don't have um, something that authorizes that kind of conduct. Um, however, the Supreme Court of Canada um, has uh, included striking um, in the kind of associational activity that's protected under the Charter. So it's arguable that those kinds of steps would be possible. Um, I think in our uh, environment, uh, it is simply not something that principals and vice principals have expressed an interest in doing. Um, they uh, have typically wanted us to exercise um, our uh, persuasive powers at the bargaining table to rely on relationships um, with school boards and government um, in the best interest of students to try to leverage agreements. Um, but uh, going forward, we, we do think that it's a, a question of um, whether we're able to have meaningful bargaining rights um, and, and whether we need to take a step that um, puts the question in front of a court um, and, and gives us an answer about what the rights of our members are. So then what do we do if we're at the table and bargaining's not going well and we're not happy? What steps can we take? Well, we can certainly walk away from the table, um, and uh, whether that is for a short time or a long time, that can uh, apply its own pressure. Uh, we can certainly, much as uh, the unions have done more recently, uh, make our positions known publicly and attempt to obtain support um, from the public and uh, try to advance our issues that way. Um, and a third option is uh, a charter challenge. And that is something that uh, is and has been on the table um, for some time and, and that we've been contemplating. Uh, our president has um, been uh, going from local district to local district in her visits and has been raising um, the issue of a potential charter challenge uh, to um, see what kind of uh, support there is um, for that potentiality because if we decide to take that step it's quite possible that we would have to forego at least in the short term uh, any improvements in our terms and conditions of employment so it's important to know that we have member support uh, if we decide that we have to take that more drastic step. So is it really bargaining if, as in the past, we seem to get the same deal that the teachers and support staff got? So, for example, if they get a 1% or 2% salary increase, 
will principals and vice principals get that same thing? Is it really bargaining separately, or are we just going to end up in the same place with the same contract that the teachers and support staff have already negotiated? I think coming at the end of their process uh, does put us in a bit of a difficult position and put, frankly, the, the Crown and the school boards in a difficult position because most union agreements contain a provision that if, uh, you know, we were to obtain something in addition or over and above what they obtained, um, it's called a Me Too provision, and they would um, assert a right to those same benefits. So it, it certainly does constrain a little bit what it is we're able to achieve. I think the biggest constraint this time around is actually the legislation that exists, Bill 124 that was passed um, to uh, limit compensation increases to 1%. So frankly, um, the government to date at least has insisted that that uh, is their limit and that alone has um, prevented or would seem to prevent the ability to bargain those issues freely. Um, so I think the legislation is more of a constraint than anything. Uh, in the past, we have obtained agreements that have um, different outcomes from those obtained by the union. So it's certainly not meaningless um, for us to go to the table and uh, to raise our issues. Sarah, you mentioned a charter challenge as a possible route or remedy. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that means? So what would a charter challenge entail and how long would it take? How much would it cost? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, essentially what we would be doing is taking to the court the question about um, the rights of principals and vice principals to collectively bargain and essentially to help determine what constitutes meaningful collective bargaining in our context. As I said, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has determined that collective bargaining is part of the protected right, um, the freedom of association under Section 2D of the Charter. And so uh, the question really is, how does that apply to our circumstances as principals and vice principals? Um, certainly, uh, it's clear that principals and vice principals have associated for the purpose of negotiating their terms and conditions of employment. That has been a key purpose of this organization since its inception. And so what we would be asking the court to do is to determine whether um, the system of collective bargaining that we have is compliant with the Charter. Our view is that because we don't have access to a dispute resolution process that's binding or neutral, frankly, um, that we don't feel that this complies with the charter requirement um, because essentially it means that all of the bargaining power rests with the government and or school boards um, and that we're not able to come to the table in a meaningful way uh, to bargain terms and conditions. So uh, if we were to take that question forward and to challenge the lack of um, framework essentially uh, for our bargaining um, and the lack of access to meaningful dispute res resolution during a bargaining impasse or frankly uh, once the agreement is reached there's no ability uh, to resolve our differences um, that may arise during the course of uh, the contract um, there's there's simply no uh, third party that we can go to for help with that um, so on those two uh, bases, we believe that we do have grounds to bring a charter challenge. 
Of course, any time you go to court to try to solve your differences, uh, it's time-consuming. Uh, a charter challenge could take many years, especially uh, if it's appealed right up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And of course, something uh, that takes many years costs many dollars. <laughs> and so it would be an expensive and time-consuming process. That's why to date, we have uh, attempted to reach consensus at the table uh, with the government and with the school boards um, in order to preserve relationships and also to avoid that kind of protracted and expensive litigation. Um, but we do feel that uh, we may be at the point now where uh, it makes sense for us to take those steps and so that's the kind of um, information we're seeking from our local members to determine whether they do support that action. Now, all of this that we've talked to so far has been focused on the provincial negotiations, but there's also a separate set, which is the local negotiations. So when do they start and how does that occur? So typically, um, we complete the provincial negotiations portion um, and then the matter uh, is turned over to the local parties to do two things. One, uh, to essentially put an agreement in place that um, adopts and incorporates the provincial terms that we've just bargained, but in addition to negotiate and come to agreement on any outstanding local issues. If a matter has been bargained at the provincial table, uh, then it's not available for local bargaining. Um, it, you have to kind of make that choice at the outset, whether something is going to be on the provincial list or reserved for local bargaining. So it's only those items that have not been discussed provincially that are available uh, for local negotiations. Um, and those uh, sessions are really at the discretion of the um, local school board and the local terms and conditions group. And though they can be concluded very quickly within a few months or they can stretch on for uh, a lengthy period of time. It really depends on the number of issues, the complexity of those issues, and the availability of the parties to meet um, and resolve them. Okay, so provincially we have a provincial table team you talked about, or a backroom team and a caucus team. So locally it would be the terms and conditions or TNC reps who would bargain on behalf of their local colleagues in each district school board? Is that what you're saying? Typically that is how it works. Um, uh, under the local constitution, uh, at least two terms and conditions representatives, one for elementary and one who is secondary, uh, must form a part of the local executive. And uh, those two people are typically tasked to lead um, the negotiations on behalf of their local executive. As members of the local executive, though, they um, receive feedback and, and direction and, and ultimately their authority um, through the executive. And, and these are elected positions. Um, and it is the full executive that uh, we hope will be involved in um, and ultimately responsible for um, negotiating and concluding the agreement, even though they might be led by uh, the terms and conditions representatives. And how does the OPC or does the OPC support that local TNC team? How do you prepare those people? How do you assist them so when they get to the table, they've got the tools they need to be able to negotiate locally? Local terms and conditions training has already begun. Uh, our terms and conditions representatives attended our council meeting in October, and uh, that was really just a little bit of a preview of what's to come. 
uh, and an opportunity to talk about some of the issues. Um, we do have four uh, district support consultants who have assigned districts and they will um, offer support uh, to our terms and conditions representatives during negotiations as well as in the in-between times when they're um, grappling with the local language and making sure that it's being um, interpreted correctly and uh, or if they have any questions about it. So those people are always available and on call essentially for um, supporting our local districts. In addition, we're going to begin in the new year uh, to um, provide regular bulletins to terms and conditions representatives that will be focused on what we see and are hearing from them as the key local issues. Um, and we do have legal counsel in-house who are available um, primarily through the district support consultants, but if there are any questions about language interpretation um, or at the table, uh, if language is being proposed and there's uh, a question about its impact uh, and proper interpretation, then legal counsel is available to provide that support and advice. So we will uh, certainly be offering all kinds of support um, for our local representatives, um, including more uh, intense training as we get closer um, to the time when local bargaining will occur. Um, certainly in the past, uh, once the provincial negotiations are concluded, uh, we will provide um, training uh, in respect of that agreement and what kind of um, steps need to be taken to incorporate um, those provisions. Uh, and then addition, in addition, we'll provide training on um, the, the local bargaining itself. A lot of really important and timely and good information here about negotiations and about bargaining. I know that this is an area that is important for our members, but an area that maybe they don't all understand intimately. I'd like to thank our guest, Sarah Coleman, General Counsel at OPC, for her extensive knowledge and expertise in the area of negotiations. I think we're all very lucky to have Sarah on our side and helping us during this process. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. Thank you, Peggy. And thank you to our listeners.